Last week we began our series in Titus with verses 1 through 4. Titus is a a young man, but not a, a relatively young, young man. He is a man who is younger than Paul. He is a man who has been mentored by Paul. He is a man who has traveled with Paul. And at some point in Paul's apostolic missionary journeys, he made his way to the island of Crete off the, the, in the Mediterranean, off the coast of Greece. Um, Paul was there in the book of Acts. It gives no reference to when Paul was in Crete, but we know he was in Crete. And it is when he is in Crete that Paul and Titus are trying to help the churches along. Paul has to leave Crete. He's got other responsibilities that the Lord has for him. And so he leaves Titus behind because Crete is a troubled family of churches. Crete is a large island and it is about, I think, 6,000 square miles, so to speak. So it's a large island. There are many churches, churches that appears were planted uh, after Pentecost when Peter was preaching and the, the folks who were hearing, uh, some of them were from Crete. Some of the folks that were at the, at Pentecost in Jerusalem, when Peter was preaching the gospel for the first time, um, they were from Crete, and most likely they brought the gospel back to Crete. But there are churches there, and these churches are troubled. And so Paul is writing to Titus, because Titus has been his very loyal and a very gifted man in helping, in helping Paul set things in order, not only here in Crete, as we will learn about in a moment, but he has done the hard work in, in Corinth with the Corinthian church and many of the doctrinal errors and many of the, the just behavioral situations that have gone on in Corinth. Um, Paul has sent this man because he trusts this man. And so he's writing to him, and now he is beginning to instruct him. So look with me in chapter 1 and let's read verses 5 through 9 together. Paul writes to Titus and he says, this is why, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And then he goes on to describe what that looks like. If anyone, an elder, who, anyone who is to be an elder, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. After John Calvin 
returned to Geneva from exile, he was immediately tasked with setting in order some of the serious weaknesses in the church, churches located there. And he began with those in leadership. For years, Geneva had been under the influence and failed leadership of worldly pastors. In his book, Calvin's Company of Pastors, Scott Minetch writes, when Calvin returned to Geneva from Strasbourg, one of the most urgent tasks at hand was to recruit a new group of pastors for the churches of the city and countryside. Unfortunately, the Genevan church was forced to recruit a group of pastors who, although they showed promise, were still far from ideal. Calvin provided a blunt assessment of some of his colleagues' more blatant weaknesses are more of a hindrance than a help to us, he wrote. They are proud, self-conceited, have no zeal and less learning. But what is worst of all, I cannot trust them, even though I very much wish I could. Now, seven years later, Calvin was able to recruit one young man called Theodore Biza to his company of pastors. Over the years, a deep bond and a deep friendship and a deep trust was, was forged between these two guys. And in, and in large part, because of their shared labor in the gospel, their common concern for, for France as a whole, um, and, and for Beza's these unflinching loyalty to his spiritual mentor, John Calvin. John Calvin goes on to say, I would be very cold-hearted, he noted, if I did not care deeply for Beza, who loves me more than a brother and honors me more than a father. Clearly, Calvin became for Beza a spiritual, a spiritual father, a theological mentor, a trusted friend, and a guide who helped him discover his, his spiritual vocation. And eventually, after John Calvin dies, Beza takes over the leadership of the Genevan churches. And this, in the same way, is Paul's relationship with Titus. Titus was Paul's Beza. And in 1.4, we see that Paul writes to Titus, my true child in a common faith. Paul is aware he's got a man who can set things in order. Paul is aware he's got a man who, who has what is necessary to be the kind of man, the, the kind of pastor that is needed in a town, in a city, in a, in a country, in a place like Crete, as, as Calvin was aware of Bessa for Geneva. And like Calvin Titus is to find a company of pastors. That is what he's looking for, a company of pastors who are, who are not only willing to serve in this very difficult place called Crete, but who have the needed and necessary qualifications to do so. That is what, what Titus is to look for. What, what these men face is formidable. If you look in verse 10 of chapter 1, Paul goes on to write, now, now here's why you have to set things in order, Titus. For in verse 10, for there, for there are many who are insubordinate. There are many who are empty talkers. There are many who are deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, the Jews, the very people that were hearing the gospel and those who were not maybe responding to the gospel, those were the people, and they had influence on Crete. They must be silenced, Paul writes, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. And then Paul goes on to describe 
Here's the difficulty of the men that you will be dealing with. One of the Cretans, a prophet of his own, said, Cretans are always liars. They are evil beasts. They are lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. And so Paul is well aware this is what Titus and this is what this new company of pastors is going to face. They will face liars. They will face evil beasts. They will face lazy guttons. And if you look down in verse 16, this is, this is who they are. Paul says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. These are men possibly some women who are professing to know God. But they are deceivers. They are empty talkers. They are denying the truth of the gospel. And they are upsetting whole families and leading people astray. And so Paul writes and says, Titus, listen, my dear brother, my true child in a common faith, here is what you need to do. Put what remains in order and do this by appointing elders. This letter establishes and accomplishes two purposes. First, that Titus is to ensure... First, Paul, Paul wants to make sure that Titus has authority to do this. Because obviously these, these Cretans, these liars, these deceivers, these men who profess to know God, these people will not accept just Titus's authority. But Paul starts out in verse 1 of chapter 1, he says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so Paul establishes his authority because then he can establish Titus's authority. And this letter, this letter is a circular letter. It is a letter that will be passed from church to church, read by Titus in each church to accommodate these churches, to let them know, here's what Paul is setting in order. And it, it establishes Titus's authority. But it also helps Titus to practically put into order what is happening in the churches. That there are these, these false teachers, these men who profess to know God, who are deceiving, who are lying, who are leading people astray. And so Paul is telling Titus, set in order elders who are going to lead people in a way that, that accords with God's word, that accords with truth, that accords with the gospel. Set these people in order. And so do this by appointing elders. Listen, you just read verse 5 of chapter 1. There is a lack of leadership. Verse 10 in, in chapter 1, unchecked false teachers. And you see that again in chapter 3, verses 10 through 11. And the great need of instruction in doctrine, as you read at the end of, of verse 9, you, you see Titus must fix what Paul is deeply concerned about, what Paul is deeply concerned about is that the grace of God that began in this church is being thwarted. This, this wonderful grace of the gospel that has transformed lives, that has changed people, that has brought hope where people had no hope, where it brought people into light when they were living in darkness, that has freed people from the, from the reality and the ravages of sin into a life of godliness because of the power of God's Spirit. These people, these people are being led astray. 
And they're being led astray from this wonderful, simple truth called the gospel. The good news that Christ has come and died for sins and rose from the dead. And so, Paul saying, Titus, you need to set this right. And the most important task you have, my friend, is to appoint elders who will faithfully guard the gospel. Appoint leaders, men who can lead and men who are strong. To accomplish this, Paul demands men of godly character, men who serve and care for and protect and nurse the church before they care for themselves. They are to follow Christ's example that we read about in, in Mark ten forty five. for the, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what leaders are called to do. And here in Titus, as Paul does in Timothy, he provides a biblical model for leadership for the church to have a good and healthy church. A church that will not only survive, but a church that will thrive. In his book on leadership, Henry Blackaby captures the need for godly leaders that Titus faced. He says, People know intuitively that claiming to be a leader or holding a leadership position does not make someone a leader. People today are warily looking for leaders they can trust. That's what Paul's after here. That's what Paul wants Titus to do. We need to find leaders, Titus that you can trust, that the people can trust, that are trustworthy in the sight of God. And you, Grace Church, should expect the same of your leaders here, of me and Devin. So here, Paul tells Titus what to look for and to expect in trustworthy leaders. And let me give you three requirements for elders in the church to be godly leaders. Three things. One, they are above reproach in their home. Secondly, they are above reproach in their community. And thirdly, they have clarity and courage in their belief. One, they're above reproach in their home. Secondly, they're above reproach in their community. And thirdly, they have clarity and courage in their belief. Now, when Paul writes here and he says that, that this is put remain in order. If anyone is above reproach, that, that phrase above reproach can also be translated blameless. Now, blameless does not mean faultless or sinless. There is no pastor, there is no elder, there is no leader who is faultless, who is sinless. There's only one who's ever been faultless. There's only one who's ever been sinless, and that is our Savior. Paul, though, requires those who lead to be men who, who make the gospel credible by their, by their life, by the way they live for Christ. The, the example of leaders, the example of a leader will either be a testimony for Christ or an accusation against Christ. One of those two things are going to happen. 
the leaders that you have, they're they're gonna be a credible testimony for Christ or they're gonna create an accusation against Christ. And so not only is Paul demanding that these leaders be above reproach, he's anticipating when the churches hear this letter read that they're gonna expect their leaders to be above reproach. And that is an expectation you rightly should have. That you should be demanding of myself and Devin and and the deacons. They are men above reproach. Brian Chappell in his commentary says this, understanding that the requirements for elders relate primarily to how one lives before others helps explain Paul's use of the word translated above reproach. The Greek term is a technical word meaning not chargeable with some offense. A person above reproach in Paul's usage is one whom others have no obvious reason to accuse for living inconsistently with his faith commitments. That's what we expect from leaders. That's what Paul is demanding here from leaders. Now, understand this, that, that you know, later on you, you see Jesus talks about Everyone who, who is a Christian will be persecuted. And, and Paul, throughout his ministry, received much criticism. But there is a difference between criticism and legitimate criticism. And when somebody, when a leader is in a position and is receiving criticism, that doesn't make him no longer above reproach. Criticism needs to be legitimate. And if you go to 1 Timothy 5.19, you will also see in there that when there is a charge against an elder, a charge against an elder must have two or three witnesses to make sure that it is a legitimate charge. And when that charge is brought, if it is appropriate, that elder is then to be publicly rebuked because he has a public ministry. But here... That is not Paul talking about. He's talking about a leader is to be above reproach and that he is not to be in a place where there is a legitimate chargeable offense. And so here in Titus, Paul describes what we must look for in men who lead the church. And the first place he begins, the very first place he begins is in the home. One six. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife. Paul begins with family, and as he states in 1 Timothy 3, if a man cannot manage his own household well, how can he possibly manage the household of God? He must be blameless. He must be above reproach with respect to his family. He must be the husband of one wife. Now, Paul's not addressing polygamy here because that was not an issue on the island of Crete. Uh, He's not requiring elders to be married. He's not saying, well, you can't be an elder if you don't have one wife. That's not what he's after as well. Um, He's not addressing divorce here. The the issue of divorce and marriage is, is... mentioned throughout other passages of Scripture and not what is being applied here. What Paul is requiring is that this man, this leader, this elder, be above reproach with respect to faithfulness to his wife. Again, Brian Chappell says the literal statement of the apostle is that an elder must be a one-woman man. 
The literal phrasing seems less concerned with one's marital history and more focused on whether the man being considered for office is perceived as living in honesty, faithfulness, and devotion to his spouse. In other words, does this man cherish his wife? That's what Paul means. Does he cherish his wife? Is she, is his wife a healthy reflection of his pastoral care in the home? Does she reflect the joy of the gospel because he has cared for her well by leading her into the grace of the gospel? This is the example he must set for his church. The husband of one wife. One woman he is faithful to, that he cherishes, that he loves deeply, that, that you, you look on his face when he looks at her and you, you see joy. That is what Paul is after. Secondly, Paul goes on to say, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. There is, there is here a high standard for elders with respect to their children. And without getting too technical, this passage uh, looks at children in, in plural. Paul is looking at beliefs and actions of not just one child, but, but in a sense what he's looking at is the, the character of the whole family. What does is, what is the whole family look like? And the word here, believe, actually is, is more accurately translated by most commentators as faithful. So are these children faithful to their dad and to their mom? Do these children respect and follow their, their dad? Are they willing to obey even if not believers? Paul is well aware of God's sovereignty in salvation that, that listen, I can preach the gospel all day long to my children. I can have the most perfect family life of gospel orientation. But unless the Spirit of God comes and regenerates that child, that child is not a believer. And living in my home with believing parents does not make him a believer. He still is under the sovereign care of God. And God is the one that needs to transform his heart into a new creation. And so what Paul is saying here, he's not saying that he, I have to do or whatever dad, whatever father has to, who wants to be an elder has to do the, the sovereign work of creation in the life of an unbeliever. That's just not possible. And Paul makes that clear throughout many other passages. And so what we understand here is that these are children who are faithful. They're not, they're not running wild. They're not in debauchery. They're, they're not unruly. Are they disobedient at times? Absolutely. We're all disobedient at times. But these are children who are faithful to their dad. And what the father is required to do with their, their family life is to adorn the gospel. As Paul writes in, in chapter 2, verse, verse 10, he says, not pilfering, not sh but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. That's what dads do in the home. They adorn the doctrine of, of the gospel. They model the gospel for their children. 
And so that's the first responsibility that you have leaders, you have an elder or elders who are above reproach in the home. Secondly, they're above reproach in the community. Look at verses 7 and 8. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. That is above reproach in the community, both within the church and outside the church. In 1 Timothy 3.7, Paul talks about having a good reputation with outsiders, not just within the church, but outside the church. He requires this blameless, not faultless or sinless, but this blameless conduct in every area of an elder's life. And here he provides lists. He provides a a list of five negative examples, and he provides a list of six positive examples, ones that should not be present and ones that should be present. And there are a number of commentators call them vices and virtues, and that's easier to remember. There are five vices and six virtues that we are as elders, and actually we as believers must exemplify. Before, though, Paul lists these vices not to have and these virtues to have, he says an elder first must ensure that he knows what his role is. And look at verse 7. These are, these are, this is as powerful a statement that Paul can make about the responsibility of a pastor, an elder, as anything he's about to say. If he doesn't get what I'm about to read, if he doesn't get this right, nothing else will get right. Paul writes this in verse 7, for an overseer as God's steward. As God's steward. The responsibility that stands before every pastor is that men and women in his care are first and foremost God's children who have been redeemed by Christ. Each person saved is a precious possession of God who must be lovingly shepherded, protected, fed, and accounted for. Each one. God has tasked pastors with a holy stewardship of those he sent his son to die for. Devin and I are stewards. We are men who willingly and we gladly love and care for you on God's behalf. It is a holy and it is a serious responsibility we're called to. And it is one that we will one day give an account for. In Hebrews 13, the writer of Hebrews says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. We are keeping watch over your souls because we will have to give an account for your soul. It's why we expect Church membership. It's why we have church membership. So that we know who we are responsible for and who we are to give an account for. 
And God holds us to this. I and Devin will stand before the Lord and I will give an account for you. He will give an account for you. That is sobering. And sometimes, the more I think about it, it is frightening. So, do good. (laughs) For my sake. (laughs) We, We know, we know we are only stewards. But we are also aware that we are his shepherds. And we, under, we understand our role. Listen, Jesus died for you, not me, not Devin. Jesus paid the price for your sin, not me, not Devin. You do not belong to us. You are God's adopted children. I have not adopted you. I cannot afford you. You are not mine. And when you go home today, don't show up at my door asking for food or clothing. Ask your father. (laughs) But we know we are to care for you because we are stewards of God's church. This is God's church. This is not my church. And I avoid even using the phrase, my church. Because this church does not belong to me. You belong to God. My responsibility is to be a steward who cares for you. And we, we are simply stewards. We desire to steward you well as God demands of us and to do so in a godly manner so that we can be above reproach. But Brothers and sisters, before we are above reproach, we are first, we are God's stewards. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. And here's what it looks like. We are not arrogant, which literally translates pleasing ourselves. We are not quick-tempered, which or which translate easily irritated or anger or unwilling to listen to criticism. Listen, if you've got something to say to us, you need to say it. Now, say it kindly. Be nice. Let me go home, have a nice nap afterwards. Um, be, just be nice. But... Don't, don't assume, well, I, I, don't, I don't need to talk to Larry about that or, you know, I just, I'm sure Larry's busy or, no, 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 we are here for you. We, our, our responsibility is to care for you and to hear from you. And if it is criticism, we need to humbly hear it. It doesn't mean we have to agree with it, but we need to hear it and, and consider it, not just outright reject it. So, so bring criticism because Devin and I endeavor not to be quick-tempered or a drunkard overindulgent with alcohol or chocolate um, would be my 
struggles. Violent, a brawler, a fighter, a contentious man who, who strikes back at others. You, this man cannot be greedy for gain. And this, this is an important one. An elder who is, who is truly not an elder, but a hireling, as Jesus talks about in John 10, does it because there's, there's money involved. There's gain involved. In, in 1 Peter 5, he's talking about the, the responsibilities of a shepherd. And, and as he wonderfully describes what a shepherd is, which I have this, my daughter drew this picture with these, this passage over my, over my desk. He writes, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, which means willingly, but willingly as God would have you. And he goes, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. An elder is a man who, who serves to please God not to get something. And so those are the vices. Arrogant, quick-tempered, drunken, violent, greedy for gain. Then Paul goes on to tell Titus, but here's what you are to want in these men. Hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Hospitable. You, you want pastors who are men and their wives who love to have you in their home. And I, and I just see this. I see how Devin and Christine do this so well. Their home is always open. Their home, there's something always going on both for folks in the church and just their neighbors who they care for, who they love, who they want to, to reach. That, that is what hospitality looks like. They, seek, they don't seek to please themselves. They seek to graciously serve others. And then a lover of good, this man seeks to promote what is good and opposes what is evil, self-controlled. And here's a man, here's a man who fiercely and successfully battles the vices that were just mentioned above. It's the fruit of the Spirit that we see in Galatians 5. He is self-controlled. He's upright, living according to God's word. He is holy. He's a man committed to godliness. And he is disciplined. He's like, he's like an athlete who, who disciplines himself, as Paul writes in Timothy, for the purpose of godliness. This man is a man who is faithful in biblical habits. So, so these are, this is the man that is above reproach in his family. This is the man that is above reproach in his community. And we look at this list and we realize, hey, wait a minute, this list is no different than the requirement for every Christian. What Christian here is, it's, it's okay to be arrogant or quick-tempered or, or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain? Not a one. And what Christian here shouldn't be hospitable or a lover of good or self-controlled or upright or holy or disciplined? Every Christian should live like that. So, so what makes the difference? What makes the difference? Well, Paul earlier in 1 Timothy writes that to qualify as an elder, a man not only must have all of these things in order, must be above reproach in family and in community, but he also must be able to teach. That's all Paul says in 1 Timothy, able to teach. But here in Titus, he expands that. He makes it clear, okay, what, what is this able to teach? And look at verse 9. 
Here's what he must be able to teach. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And that's the third point. He must have clarity and courage in belief. He must have clarity and courage in belief in protecting and preaching the gospel. First Timothy 1.10 talks about what's gone on, as we've read before. They're insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. And then he goes on in verse 14, not devoting themselves there to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. And in verse 16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. There is this gospel assault going on. And so Paul is saying, listen, you've you got to have men who, who are courageous. They're going to hold firmly to the truth, to the gospel, to what he says here is the trustworthy word. That word trustworthy word, that phrase literally means gospel. They're holding firm to the gospel. And then he goes on to say, so that they may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. They know they have clarity of what they believe and they have courage in teaching it and holding firm to it. And so far that they are willing to go and rebuke those who contradict it. That is what is at stake. The gospel, Paul is telling Titus, that you have heard and that you've believed and that you hold dearly is being dismantled by false teachers and divisive believers who may not even be Christians at all. It is this gospel, Titus, you have to courageously defend and faithfully teach. Oh, Titus, this is what you must do. And that is what we must do as your pastors. We must courageously defend. We must have a doctrinal fidelity to God's word. Listen, regardless of the onslaught of false teachings and books and seminars and cultural pressures that every elder faces and every church faces, elders must faithfully and courageously hold firm to the trustworthy word, the gospel, as it has been taught. Every day, every day, you and I live there is someone trying to distort or destroy the gospel that we hold so dear. If you don't think that is true, just open the pages of the newspaper, get online, or go to your local Christian bookstore, and you will see a denial, a distortion, or a destruction of the gospel. Many profess to be Christians, as we see here. Paul's instruction to Titus and the elders is to never let go of the gospel truth, to hold on to it firmly. Listen, today it requires courage to, to stand firm against popular books and popular teachings that seem so plausible and seem so helpful. Most of the false teachings make people feel good. I get, I mean, in the... 40-some-odd years I have been a Christian. I, can't, I, I, I don't even have a list. Long, the list is so long about how many books that have come out that have become the, the, the hottest item. And people are gathering around it. And, and they're, they're 
they're reading it and they're calling it a Bible study. It's not a Bible, but they're calling it a Bible study and they're studying this book and, and it's just on, and, and it's just a, a nugget of gospel truth or a nugget of truth or some level of truth from the gospel, but it's not an, a clear and, and it is not accurate of what the gospel is, what the scriptures are, and, but they build a theology on it, they build a lifestyle on it, and they go astray. And many have their faith shipwrecked. So not only as elders must we hold firm to the gospel truth we know, brothers and sisters, we must courageously refute and rebuke those who contradict our gospel. As pastors of Grace Church, Devin and I must publicly and boldly stand against teachings that contradict Scripture, even if they're really popular in the Christian world. Our job as pastors is to never stop preaching the gospel attested to in Scripture. In 2 Timothy, Paul writes, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander into myths. That's what stands before you. When Devin and I stand here or we have a conversation with you about our concerns regarding a new teaching or a new teacher or a new book or a new conference. Listen, we're doing our best to obey this passage. And it might even mean at times refuting you or rebuking you gently but firmly. John Calvin said this, and I love what he says at the end. He goes, here then is the sovereign power with which the pastors of the church, by whatever name they be called, ought to be endowed. That is, that they may dare boldly to do all things by God's word, may compel all worldly power, glory, wisdom, and exaltation to yield to and obey his majesty supported by his power, speaking about God, may command all from the highest even to the last, may build up Christ's household and cast down Satan's, may feed the sheep and drive away the wolves, may instruct and exhort the teachable, may accuse, rebuke, and subdue the rebellious and stubborn, may bind and loose, finally, if need be, may launch thunderbolts and lightnings, but do all things in God's word. Thunderbolts and lightnings. Oh, wouldn't I love to do that just once? <laughs> and we do this by what Paul writes here, that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Our responsibility as elders is to instruct you faithfully in sound doctrine so that we fulfill these passages. 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that, righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. That's instruction and sound doctrine. We are, we are tasked, brothers and sisters, to preach the truth and clarity of God's word so that you know it and you can defend it. 
We have, Devin and I have been given doctrinal oversight of Grace Church. And we cannot do anything else but defend the gospel as proclaimed in Scripture. And we do that by instructing you in sound doctrine. And our deepest desire, if you heard Devin and I talking when we meet each week, our deepest desire is that our church, each member of our church, that you live each day in the joy of the gospel. But if it's a gospel that has been distorted or undermined, you won't do that. If your doctrine is not sound, you will not live this way. And just as Devin and I must be students of the Bible, so must you. The primary way that happens is here on Sunday morning where you are instructed in sound doctrine. Each week, we endeavor to instruct you and to help you draw near to God through His Word that you might know Him better. That is our most serious and holy responsibility. And I want you to know each week that Devin and I teach, ringing in our ears is James 3. In the background, you don't hear it, but I hear it. And Devin hears James 3.1 ringing, saying, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So not only will I stand before God and have to give an account for each and every one of you, so be good, I also will have to give an account for every word I utter up here. So I have to be good. And I want you to know how hard Devin and I do work to make this teaching moment clear and accurate and faithful to the text and focused on God and His glory. We, we have no interest, we have no interest in ever hearing you say, what a great teaching. All we want you to hear, all we, we want to hear is what you say is, what a great Savior. When we're done, I want you to hear about Christ who has died for you, who lives for you, who intercedes for you, who has brought you to this place to care for you, to shepherd your soul, to provide men for you who are men desiring to be above reproach, desiring to instruct you in sound doctrine, desiring to hold firm the truth the trustworthy gospel for your sake so that you live in the joy of the gospel. As elders, Colossians 1.28 is the goal of our teaching and I'll close with this. Him, Christ, Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. You should rightly expect of your elders, men who are blameless at home, blameless here and in the community, and clear and courageous in their belief and teaching. Father, thank you for Thank you for this privilege of stewarding God's people. And Lord, I pray that you would, this morning, 
help each person of Grace Church to live above reproach, to live above reproach in their families, to live above reproach in their church, to live above reproach in their communities, and for each person here to have a clear doctrine, a clear belief, and a courage to hold fast to the truth of the gospel. Oh, God, may Grace Church be a church that glorifies your name through our godly living. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.